Can you think, for those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a while, and if you haven't and you're kind of new to walking with Jesus, maybe you haven't had one of these yet, but um, be watching for it because you can trust they'll be, this will be coming. But for those of you who maybe have been walking with the Lord for a little while, can you, can you look back on your Christian life and can you see maybe a, a, a fork in the road where God brought somebody into your life to correct you about the way that maybe you were going, and God used that conversation or many conversations in order to, to redirect you, to take you from a path of maybe uh, either straying into error or disobedience or whatever it may have been, and to, to adjust your course, that, that by God's word, they, they, they helped you to follow Jesus more faithfully. It'd be a good thing to talk about over lunch and testify about the way that God has done that. I'm going to share a few of those stories with you this morning. The first one um, is happened in the year 2007. I had been a believer for about seven years. I've been a pastor for about seven years, and I had some I had some secret sin going on in my life. And in God's kindness, um, yeah, He helped me with the, the help of a friend to, to confess that sin, to to bring it forth into the light. And um, I entered into uh, about a six month uh, period of going to a biblical counselor. Um, and basically that means I sat down with somebody who took God's word and helped to apply it to my life, and it was revolutionary. I had these meetings with this guy named John Henderson where I went and I sat down with him, and he opened the Bible, and he did something for me that I had never seen happen before. He taught me that the gospel, the grace of the Lord Jesus, was not just for people who didn't know Jesus, but it was just as much for Christians. You see, my whole approach to the Christian life up to that point had been like if there was sin, I just needed to try harder, work harder, and I needed to, to either cover it up out of shame and try to manage it, or that I would just try to do better the next time. And that constant tossing to and fro was debilitating, and it stole joy, and there was no progress in my growth. But I sat down with that brother, and he opened the scriptures, and week after week after week, he showed how the gospel of God's grace applied to my brokenness and all of the different sins and, and things that were, were going on in my world. And I tell you what, it utterly changed my life. God used that interaction uh, with, with John and around the gospel of God's grace to, to change me. And the reason I share that with you this morning is because the book of Acts, where we are this morning in Acts chapter 18, we're going to see a very similar sort of encounter. We're going to see Christians who are going to come alongside another Christian to bring God's word to bear, to, to, to strengthen him, to help him to see an error in his way, and then to push him on by the grace of God deeper into maturity and further on in faithfulness in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's going to help him to fulfill the mission even that, that God has given to the church in the book of Acts. In case you haven't been with us for the book of Acts, it begins in, well, chapter 1, because that's where all the books begin, the first chapter. But in chapter 1, verse 8, the risen Lord Jesus gives a commission to his disciples to be his witnesses, witnesses of the resurrected Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. And those three places kind of serve as the outline for the book. In chapters 1 through 7, we see the, the gospel spread through Jerusalem. And then chapters 8 through 12, it spreads through Judea, Samaria. And then in chapter 13, it goes beyond there to the very ends of the earth. The good news about a resurrected Lord who saves sinners like you and me and now reigns as the eternal king of glory, that good news spreads through synagogues and through the streets. 
It goes through towns and it goes through cities. It reaches Jews and it reaches Gentiles. And the church is birthed and formed and shaped and molded. And the gospel does what the gospel does. It gives life. And in the midst of that, um, we meet a man named Paul, a guy named Saul. He used to be a persecutor of the church. God arrested him, as it were, as he was on his way to arrest Christians and saved him. And he became an apostle who who took God's word and, and heralded it out and planted churches. And we watch him go through three missionary journeys. We've seen so far the first missionary journey in chapter 14 and 15, where he went through the region of Galatia and planted churches. We saw the second missionary journey in chapters 16 through 18 uh, that went through the region of Macedonia. And this morning, we are entering into the third part of the missionary journey. And as we come to this, this section, we're going we're gonna to summarize the whole text that we'll see this morning in, in this idea. That we are to strengthen one another with God's word so we can follow his way more faithfully. We are to strengthen one another with God's word so that we can follow his way more faithfully. Now, if you remember back at the end of May, whenever uh, Brian Davis uh, gave us our last sermon in the, the book of Acts chapter 18, we're wrapping up a time in Corinth where Paul and his buddies have been there ministering. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 18. I don't really have an outline for us this morning. We're just going to go through and observe some things and pull out some applications for us. But it's all under the heading of strengthen one another with God's word so that we can follow his, his way more faithfully. Let's pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 18. After this, meaning his ministry in Corinth, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. And at a, and a Kencre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Let's pause there and catch you up to speed. This is the final stage of the second missionary journey. Paul remained, it says, in Corinth many days. Um, it's estimated that he was there about 18 months in total. Uh, During that time, he wrote, uh, very likely wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, a couple of the the books that we have in our New Testament, letters to this church that he had helped to plant and then he had to to leave because of persecution. Well, he he leaves there and he begins this trip back to to Antioch, which if you'll remember through the book of Acts, is kind of home base for all of the missionary journeys. They are the ones who sent Paul and Barnabas and others out as missionaries to go to various places where the gospel needed to either be established or strengthened. And we learn in verse 18 here that he stopped by Industry 10 and got a haircut uh, by Greg uh, because he had a vow. Um, (laughs) We don't know, we don't have a lot of information here about, uh, about the vow. We don't know if this was a Nazarite vow or if this was some sort of personal vow that he had made to the Lord. What we do know is that vows were common in Jewish worship, uh, and Paul evidently still took them, possibly because he was seeking help um, in in, furthering God's God's work, or maybe he was seeking particular help from the Lord to be strengthened in the midst of some sort of affliction, 
Or maybe it was he was preparing for a feast. Here in just a moment, we're going to see it looks like he goes up to Jerusalem, and he may have been just preparing his heart for that feast. We're, we're unsure of why he took the vow. But for us, I think just one thing to note is that there's nothing in the New Testament that, that commands us to take these sorts of vows, um, though Christians are free to do that. Um, and that would just take wisdom and discernment. So, for instance, here in a couple weeks, in October, we're going to be setting aside a whole week of prayer and fasting. And that week of prayer and fasting would be something you would want to enter into thoughtfully. And, and if you're going to make some sort of commitment to the Lord, you would want to do that in a way that would be thoughtful and measured and, and accountable to, to one another. So the scriptures tell us to not, not make a, a vow rashly. But anyway, Paul said it's time to cut his hair, which evidently was growing as a sign of him taking that vow. Well, on to verse 18, as he departed Corinth, notice he took some people with him. Did you catch that there? He took with him Priscilla and Aquila. More on them in, in just a moment. Verse 19, Paul ministered in the synagogue, which was his typical uh, evangelism spot. Uh, he would go in there, typically think that this is going to be a good place with people who have a background in the scriptures. He's going to come in, he's going to evangelize, see who's interested, uh, dodge some stones that will be thrown at him, and then he'll go and follow up with the people who wanted to learn more about Jesus the Christ. Well, verse 20, this group responded really well. They asked him to stay, which is what you would want to see. He heralds the gospel, and they're like, oh, wow, tell us more about how Jesus is the Christ, about how he fulfills the law, how he fulfills the, the, the prophets. Tell us more. But he says no. He, he says no, and that he would return if God willed. Now, Bible trivia time, did God will for him to return? Yes, he did. He sure did. He's going to go back in chapter 19 and 20, and he's going to end up staying there for about two and a half years. So he is going to go back there, but it's just not at this, this time. All right, Paul departs then, verse 22. He landed in Caesarea, which was a port city. And he went up, and he greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. Now, many see this going up here as a trip up to Jerusalem, maybe for a feast, it would have been about a three-and-a-half-day journey from this port city. Um, and then from Jerusalem, we would have gone to, to Antioch. There's some discussion there. We'll see when we get to heaven. The Lord tells us everything that happened. But that, that looks like maybe what happened, that he went up to Jerusalem and then up to Antioch. But it's important that he lands in Antioch because this is him coming full circle again, and he's concluded now his second missionary journey. This was, again, home base for all of his mission's efforts. He would have gone back there, and could you imagine the Apostle Paul, like that's the evening service you want to make sure you're at, right? The Apostle Paul comes back, and he gets up, and he just testifies of what God has done. And he tells stories of synagogues and being, having stones thrown at him, and about demons being cast out, and about people being saved, and about churches being planted. And let me tell you the story about this one particular person, and how God worked in their life, and he just would have had story after story of God's grace, that God had moved, and he's back at Antioch, which, by the way, is one of the unique blessings for ascending church, which we've talked about uh, around here, that we, in many ways, have this same sort of DNA here at the church, where there's people here for a little while, and then sometimes they go off. There's, there's a unique sorrow for that sort of church, because you have to say goodbye a lot, and that's hard, but there's also a really unique blessing when people are coming back with reports of what God has done, and you get to just see how the Lord is working through feeble efforts. So may the Lord give us lots of those sorts of, of reports. Well, verse 23, after spending some time there, he, he departed. And this is the beginning of the third missionary journey, if you're keeping score at home. And this is going to go from chapter 18, verse 23, all the way through 21, 16. 
which is mostly going to be one really long stay in Ephesus. But first, verse 23, he went through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now we need to slow down here for just a moment. Notice what Paul is doing during this third missionary journey. He's not just out planting new churches. Notice, what, what is he doing? What are his efforts aimed at? It says it right there. Strengthening all the disciples. He's going back to the churches that he had been a part of establishing, and now he's taking them deeper in their understanding of who Christ is. He is strengthening them. Now, what does that mean that he's strengthening all of them? Well, it doesn't mean that he's just establishing CrossFit gyms, Justin Hughes, okay? That's not what he's doing. Um, trying to strengthen them in that way. I'm sure they work out, though. Maybe not. Anyway, this is spiritual strengthening. He, he is going back, and he's, he's praying with them and teaching them to pray all the more fervently. He is teaching the Scriptures with them, and he's helping them to learn how to teach the Scriptures to others. He's going to be encouraging areas of growth that he sees in them. He's going to bring correction in areas of, of error or needed maturity. He's going he's gonna to pastor the personal need of each of, of, of the people there or help the elders who are established there to learn how to do that, give some pastoral counsel. If you want to learn even what sorts of things he might be doing, I just encourage you to read the epistles. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the Thessalonian letters. You're going to notice Paul is doing this sort of strengthening in, that, in those forms by writing letters, and here he's doing it through personal visits. And he's bearing the commands of Jesus on the lives of the disciples there. Which is a couple things just to notice. I think the first thing to notice with this is the assumption in the New Testament is that disciples and churches are inseparable. If you're a follower of Jesus, the assumption in the New Testament is that you are part of a local church. There's no roaming free agents in, in, the, in the New Testament. Even Paul, who's going around everywhere, he's sent by Antioch and accountable to the people in Antioch. He goes back there. This is, this is, what it, this is the Christian norm is that you are part of a, a local church, always united to one. So I just want to encourage you, if you're visiting here today, praise the Lord, we're thankful to have you. We want to encourage you to, to discern a place where you can land and to be faithful there, to be cared for and to care for others. We'd love to help you think about whether this church is the right one for that or to help you find another gospel preaching church in the area. We, we'd be glad to help you think through that. And... If the Lord moves you from here to another place because of a job or whatever it may be, one of the primary factors in determining whether you should go or not is whether there's a local church there. There's nothing really more spiritually dangerous for you to get some kind of promotion where you're going to make a bunch more money but go to a place where there's no healthy church. So all of a sudden you're going to have a bunch more money, maybe some more power, maybe some more whatever, but you're not going to have good spiritual guidance to help you. If I was Satan, I'd love that bet. Just be mindful about that. I think it's also important when he's strengthening these churches just to, to notice here that this is the great commission being obeyed by Paul and the rest of the, the churches here. Jesus commanded uh, the disciples to be disciples who do what? Make disciples by teaching them to obey what? All that I commanded you. 
this is what he's doing. He's going back and teaching these disciples how to obey everything that Jesus had, had commanded. Which, by the way, when you read through Acts, like <laughs> the assumption that this is what churches are doing is really clear. Like what else would a church be doing other than making disciples and helping to strengthen churches? Like this is, what else are you going to do? This is what it's about. It's not just entertainment or comfort or any of that kind of nonsense. This is about the Great Commission. So everything that this church does and any healthy church should do is going to be able to draw a beeline from every single dollar, every single event to how does this help strengthen disciples? How does it help establish and strengthen disciples? If we can't do that, you've got to get rid of it because that's, that's why we're here. One other thing, just a note from this before we, we press on, is that there's a clear New Testament pattern here that helps us think about shaping our own efforts to spread the gospel through missions. The emphasis of mission work in the New Testament here is always on establishing churches and what? Strengthening churches. It, it, it's, it's both. And this is really important because if you are kind of up on the missions conversation of our day, Almost all of the emphasis is on which part? Establishing churches. We need new churches. We need 10,000 churches in six minutes. Let's go. Like that's, that's how people have these, these grand visions about planting churches and it's this rapid reproduction thing which may the Lord establish lots of new churches. Yes and amen. But if the goal is also strengthening the churches, then the way you're going to plant those churches and explain what a church is, and have a whole plan for follow-up and edification, I think it necessitates slowing down a little bit and making sure that we're wise in our establishing. That actually is going to bear more long-term fruit. This is why at, at, at DRBC, again, we're no perfect church, but we are aiming to develop our approach to missions through this same sort of approach in, in the New Testament. We certainly want to establish new works, and by God's grace, that'll be happening in the days ahead. But we also want to edify existing works. We want to strengthen existing works. That's why, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you are a ministry partner of Delray Baptist Church, either locally or internationally, one of the things we promise you is not just prayer, which we do pray, and we should pray all the more, and not just financially, which we do want to support and do it generally, gener not generally, but generously, uh, very specifically, actually, and gen generously. So, um, <laughs> but we also want to promise you that, barring some kind of worldwide pandemic or whatever, we are going to visit you annually. There will be an annual visit from some team at our church, whether it be an elder and somebody else, or whether it be a team that goes. If you are one of our missions partners, we will visit you annually. It's the pattern that we see in the New Testament. We want to go and help to strengthen existing churches. And that doesn't mean we're going to come in and be like, let me tell you all what you all need because we're the experts. No, no, no. We, do a, we, we want to investigate what are the ways that we can help you. That this, us coming there, we want to send a, a, a team crafted for the needs of that place. Tell us what you need and we'll see if we have the right people to come and help. We want to be about strengthening those works, not just furthering our own uh, ideas and ambitions. Now, while Paul carries on that portion of the work, meanwhile, back in Ephesus, you remember 
we, he left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus because they're going to carry on the work there. Notice, Paul does not need to be omnipresent. It's actually impossible. There's only one who's omnipresent. His name's God. So this is why you, you make disciples so that people can stay back and do work elsewhere. Priscilla and Aquila are staying back in Ephesus to do the work. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, love this couple. This is one of my favorite couples in the Bible. Um, they are one of the most famous couples in the early church. And why? Because of the way they were committed to Christ's work together. They, they are what you might call a consecrated couple. They, they, were, they were married, but they were gospel partners. Every time they show up, they are blessing the churches. Paul met them actually in the, in the first part of chapter 18 of Acts. I don't know if you remember or not, but he was in Corinth. And he, do you remember what Paul's job was? What was his trade? He made tents. Well, he just so happened to bump into some other people who made tents, this couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And we don't know if he led them to Christ or what, but maybe they already knew the Lord. We don't know which way it is, but we do know that they struck up a deep friendship that is going to be an enduring friendship. And they would travel with Paul from city to city. Even here, we're going to see they're going to go from, um, from Corinth to, to Ephesus and then on to Rome. And everywhere this couple goes... They refresh and they strengthen the churches. That's what they're about. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 16. It speaks about uh, their, uh, their hospitality. Um, actually, I'll read that in a second. But um, in, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 16, they, they talk about their hospitality as they're hosting a church in, in their home. And in Romans 16, this is what we're going to read, where they're, they're willing to suffer for the church. Paul writes uh, to the Romans, he says, Greet uh, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. That means every single church that Paul bumps into, they're like, oh, hey, Paul, good to see you. By the way, how's Priscilla and Aquila? Love them. They're so, they're amazing. This is what they were about. They were about loving the saints. Husbands and wives, I just want to encourage you, maybe to spend a little time studying the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila together, seeing what they were about. There's not tons of texts that are out there, but there's enough that you could do some serious praying and, and, and reevaluating uh, the, the way that maybe you, you spend your, your lives and resources that God gives you. May the, may the married couples of this church be about that work, Right? And if, you, if, you're not, um, yeah, if you're not married, I want to highly encourage you, find couples like that and help them in helping do that work. We need help. So come alongside and say, I want to help you guys. Or those of you who are single and looking for, if the Lord would have somebody for you to marry, make sure you marry somebody who's going to be about that work. Not just bury on potential. Well, maybe they will be. No, don't do that. That's, going to, that's not going to end well. Be about, somebody, be about that ministry with somebody from, from the get-go. Well, anyway, as Priscilla and Aquila remain in Ephesus, Ephesus there, and they, they visit with believers, they, they follow the pattern of going to the synagogue where it just so happened that God had a divine appointment for them. Verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man competent in the scriptures. 
He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So we meet Apollos. We meet Apollos here in verse 24. We learn that he's a Jew, so he's of the, the chosen people, but he's, he's a native of Alexandria. Not Alexandria, Virginia. I don't know if you know this, but there's other Alexandrias in the world that were before this place. One particularly in Egypt, okay? So this is uh, where he's from. He's from, from North Africa there. Uh, Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It was founded by Alexander the Great. And it was, um, it was known to be an intellectual haven. Philosophers were, were, loved this place. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the library there, which was the largest in the world of, of its day, had over a half a million scrolls. This, this place was... It was the center of learning in the world, right? Well, he came to Ephesus. He left Alexandria, and he came to Ephesus as a bit of a traveling preacher. He's an itinerant preacher. And in verse 26, it says he visited synagogues, right? And he told people about the need to prepare themselves for Messiah. He's preaching Jesus in the synagogues, which is, which is risky if you've been watching along in the book of Acts. And what do we notice about this man? Tell me about his preaching style. It says right there that he's, he's eloquent, right? He's an eloquent man. The word means attractive or convincing of speech. He is uniquely gifted with the word. Like John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople in the 3 and 400s, who is called the, the golden-tongued preacher. That kind of guy. Or, or Charles Spurgeon from, from London in the 1800s known as the Prince of Preachers. This guy's in that sort of category. Like he's very gifted and it's very evident. And Apollos became one of the, the favorite preachers in the early churches. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you've heard this name Apollos before. It's shown up. Because the Corinthians, who were pretty worldly, they and one of the ways you knew they were worldly is that he had cliques around particular teachers. So that's not an evidence of maturity to be like, I'm of this guy or I'm of that guy. That's actually a sign of worldliness when you're tribal about particular teachers. Just keep that in mind. They were all about some Apollos. Uh, they, they even formed some sort of unhealthy attachment to him saying, I'm of Apollos. And the Corinthians loved this guy. They, they even begged Paul uh, to, to send Apollos there to do a conference for him. Like, could you, could you send Apollos? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, concerning our brother Apollos, I urged him to visit you, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. We don't know why he didn't want to go there, but he's like, I'm not going to that place. Not right now anyway, Lord willing. But he was what you might call a magnetic minister. He, when he preached, people just listened. They were tuned in. He was fervent in spirit, the text says, which means to, to show great eagerness or enthusiasm or, or literally to boil in the spirit, 
It's like while he's preaching, you're like, that dude's about to turn on the fire, right? Like he's that kind of guy. He had, he had fire in his bones. He believed what he preached, and it was evident. And it says also that he was competent in the scriptures. He'd been trained in the scriptures. Dude knew his Bible. When, when he talked, Bible came, came out of him. He, he understood the law. He understood the prophets. He was able to interpret them and to apply them in a way that blessed everybody who listened. And it says also here that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He had heard about Jesus. Now, we don't know how. We don't, we don't learn where he first heard about Jesus. But this man knew that Jesus was the Christ. And it says here, he spoke and taught accurately things concerning Jesus. So he was on point with everything that he was teaching about Jesus. He likely pointed to how Jesus uh, mirrored the Messiah of, of the Old Testament. And, and though his teaching was accurate, it needed to become more accurate. It says here that he only knew the baptism of John. So Apollos, important to notice here, he had a, a limited and incomplete understanding. A correct understanding, but limited and incomplete Whatever his message was, it sounded a lot like JTB, John the Baptist, right? You remember him, John the Baptist's message? Calling, warning everybody, hey, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, they're corrupt. Flee from them and flee to Jesus, who is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ. You need to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's all totally true. Amen. But it was inaccurate, and it needed to become more accurate. He was faithful, but he needed to become more faithful. His instruction was incomplete. He needed to be strengthened by the scriptures. Now, what does it mean, or what is it that he didn't know? We don't get like a little, you know, Christianity today of like, oh, well, here's what he's teaching and all that. We don't, we don't get tons of that. I think there's kind of three options as to what it was that he was missing out on. Some propose that he, was, he missed out on the idea that Jesus actually died and rose from the dead. He knew he was the Christ, and he knew he was coming, um, to, and that everybody needed to flee to him because the kingdom of God he was ushering in. But maybe he hadn't heard that Jesus had died and rose from the dead. Or secondly, that he, he, had knew, he knew Jesus had died and been raised from the dead, but he had, he had not heard that Jesus had commissioned his disciples to have people baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, that if you were just baptized in, into John, that that was sufficient. Or thirdly, that he had missed out on, on the teaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think the answer is clear here, that we don't know. <laughs> I mean, now you read some commentators, they all know. I just, I just don't, think, I don't think we know. I think, and I think it's fine to be unsure here because that's not the main point of what's happening. The, the main point is to highlight that, that they, he was on the right track and he was doing well, but, a, but a, a Priscilla and Aquila, they knew what was off and they addressed it with him, which is what happens here. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
Explain to him the way of God more accurately. Pause, by the way. These errors here, we're going to see the same sort of error show up next week. So we'll double back with it when we come to chapter 19. I won't just give you that we don't know. We'll fill in a little more next week, but I still don't think we know. But anyway, um, so Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Priscilla, you can just picture him, right? They're in the synagogue. He's preaching. They're kind of nodding their heads. They're like, mm-hmm, amen. They're like, this guy, he can preach. Like, this is, this, is, this is fire. They're smiling, amen, amen, amen. And then all of a sudden they're like, mm, well, is he, is he going to say it? Is he, is he going to mention about the, you know? They, they do that kind of thing. And then Priscilla probably leans over and says, let's take him to lunch. <laughs> and, and that's what they do. Right? They, they, they heard much in him that was good, but, but some things that could, be, that could be better. Much that was accurate, but some that needed to be more accurate. Now, I think the character of Priscilla and Aquila are on full display here in this interaction with, with Apollos. Did you notice here that they are careful listeners to God's word? They're not just showing up, doing their duty, and then rolling out. They have come in order to be instructed. They've come in order to be edified. They've come in order to receive the word and believe the word and to be changed by the word. We also notice here that they're, they're, they're pretty courageous, right? I mean, it would have been easy to be like, ooh, don't want to step on any toes. Let's just, let's just kind of let it, let, let it be. It would be easy maybe to overlook, especially because he was speaking so much, so much truth. But they knew that God had put them in that city to do a work there, and they wanted to make sure that the best work could be done, especially because this guy was so gifted. He was going to be influential, and they knew it. And you see also here that there's, there's a, yeah, a nod toward their hospitability. We've seen that elsewhere in the, in, in, the, in the book of Romans. But they welcome him, come in, and let's talk. And notice also here, what do they not do? Tell me about how they don't do it. Yeah, they don't just stand up and be like, hello, listen, sir, that's not it, right? They don't just like go right out and write a blog post or do some angry YouTube video in their mom's basement and be like, did you see what happened today over at the synagogue? Like, that's not what they do. No, they're, they're godly. They're, they're godly here. They, they, they want him to, to, to grow. They don't publicly attack him. They know, listen, we're on the same team. So they, they take him aside, privately, personally, which, as someone who has been corrected a few times, um, it's easier to, be, to not be defensive when somebody doesn't just come in hot and been like, I'm not even sure if you're a Christian. And be like, oh, well, good morning. Uh, let's talk about that. Um, you know, like that's, that's harder to just, they, they serve him here. And they, it says, explain to him the way of God more accurately. The word means to, to, to explain carefully, to fill someone in on something. They see an opportunity with Apollos to move him from one degree of faithfulness to another. Again, not from inaccurate to accurate, but from accurate to more accurate. And you're like, you said that six times. I know because I think it's really important. Ben, Rob, and I had a good conversation about this this week, and I think you'll see why in just, just a moment. Their posture here was to edify him, not to demonize him. They didn't feel the need to put this gifted young man in his place. 
They were mature enough to know that Apollos needed to be corrected. That's clear. They, they, they see it here. Which is important because they didn't allow the giftedness of this man to blind them to his need for growth. He needed to grow. And I just want to say, the church at large, because we love our celebrity pastors, has done an injustice to a lot of young, gifted, zealous pastors by just putting them on stage right away without giving them years of sitting and learning and watching and growing. Listen, I'm not gifted like lots of other people, but I tell you what, my, my testimony was of such, at the very beginning, I was on stage from like day three. And I'm not blaming anybody else for my sin, but I tell you what, it did not serve my soul well. I think I was on stage too quick. I think I got a platform too fast. I think that, yeah, it was, and I wasn't mature enough to see it either. Too often, eloquence intimidates people and tempts them to leave gifted preachers alone. But not Priscilla and Aquila. Because it's evident that they, this wasn't about them. It was a, they loved him. They wanted good for him. They weren't jealous of him. They didn't want to pull him down because of some kind of turf war. Hey, Paul put us in Ephesus, so you, let's blast him so that we can make sure everybody listens to us and not him. That's ungodly and worldly. Territorialism has no place in the kingdom of God. It's God's kingdom, not ours. Priscilla and Aquila here are carrying out the same ministry of Paul. They're strengthening the churches. And we see here in this text, it happens corporately, yes, but it also happens individually. It's a both and. The RBC, I just want to encourage you to, to not allow the giftedness of others to blind you to their need for, for growth. May our homes and our our workplaces and our churches be, love one another enough to be willing to, to correct one another. Now, some of you needed to not hear what I just said. Some of you think, oh, my spiritual gift is correcting people who are wrong. <laughs> no, it's not, okay? Uh, if you think, no, actually, that's my gift. My gift is to point out where everybody else is wrong. Um, <laughs> I think the Lord's calling you to go somewhere else, maybe, but uh, no, but, but I just want to encourage you to, to beware of that. Beware if you think you have such a keen eye on everybody and everything and every topic that's out there that you need to be the one who's always correcting everything. Like, if you can't listen through an imperfect sermon and not just walk away and be edified, I just want you to know that's not like a quality to emulate. You will never hear a perfect sermon unless you read the Sermon on the Mount out loud. Like, that's the only sermon you ever hear. So if, and, and by God's grace, I just want to say really clearly, I do not sense a spirit of criticism in this church. You guys are more than generous, more than encouraging, more than gracious. I just want to say, it is a joy to minister here. So I, I, I typically think that most criticism that comes our way is well-warranted and appreciated. So just want to be really clear. But in case you're visiting here and you're angry, because of how bad your last church was. This is going to be a worse church. You should just, I mean, maybe. I mean that kind of jokingly, but, but not. There is a posture in some people that is just fault-finding. 
that's always critical about everything. I just want you to know that's not the spirit of Christ. We must, and going back to the um, imperfect degrees of faithfulness here, you got to realize that everything is not black and white. There's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of spectrum there in regards to to seeing things better. Not every issue is a hill to die on. Not er every area of disagreement is worthy of a torch and a pitchfork. And there is a wrong way to be right. And some people have a PhD in this. No. Gentleness, thoughtfulness. It is a mark of immaturity to see everything as black and white. It's just not. Now, there is black and white, and you need to be able to discern what those things are. But maturity will help you to grow in your ability to say, this is important, but it's not the same level as is Jesus the Son of God. The goal in correcting others is not for you to be seen as right, but it's for Jesus to be seen more rightly. And that's what Priscilla and Aquila are about here with Apollos. They just want Jesus to be magnified. They want, they want him to be as accurate as possible. Yes, you're accurate, but let's go all the more. Let's grow in this because we want Jesus to be seen clearly in your ministries. That is always, must always be our prayerful posture as we approach one another about things that we see going on in things that people say or what they post on social media or conversations that you're having or postures or interactions or whatever it may be. It must, it's not, it must not be about us. It's got to be the John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. That seems to be the posture here of Priscilla and, and Aquila. Their aim was to, to edify now, why were they so gentle in their approach? F.F. Bruce has a wonderful word here. Maybe Priscilla and Aquila could help him with what he didn't know because Paul had helped them with what they didn't know. You see, the more you realize that you're a debtor to God's grace and the only reason you see anything clearly is because God graciously showed it to you, it produces a sort of humble posture in your interactions with others that's going to be gentle and tender not domineering and, and full of, of, of vengeance. Now, the topic they were teaching about was a significant one. We, we don't know exactly what it was, but it was, it was enough that he needed to, to hear it. And Apollos here was humble and teachable. Uh, do you notice here? It, 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 we're going to see in just a moment. It's going to produce good things. He, but he doesn't pull that. Do you know who I am card? He doesn't do that. Jason Seville rightly pointed out that if, if, our, if our giftedness and our education in whatever our arena of life is makes us unapproachable and uncorrectable, we and everyone we minister to will suffer for it. You will not grow apart from correction. It won't happen. No. Every Christian walks around with under construction signs. Been wrong multiple times today, probably will again. Like that's, we wear that sign all the time. Listen, if you want to be used by God, you must be correctable. You must assume, even if somebody, not everything they say is right, you always be looking for what in there is true. 
Because if you come off as somebody who is not correctable, or not just come off, but if you are somebody who's uncorrectable, people will not be able to trust you. Because they're going to think this person is just about their ambition and their desires rather than the Holy Spirit. Apollos is one of the most gifted preachers in church history, but he was humble enough to sit down and be instructed by a husband and wife in how to be a more faithful preacher. Never, brothers, particularly those of you, brothers and sisters, who are aiming to have some influence in ministry, which all of us should generally, I just please hear this, never get to the place where you think you can't keep growing deeper in a better understanding of God's word. Never get there. Now, I have not always received godly correction well. But I want to share with you just a couple brief stories of ways that God has used people like y'all to help me. And I shudder to think where my ministry would be if, if this, these sorts of things had not happened. I'll give you a couple. First was early on in my ministry in Texas. A friend was, was there as kind of a pastoral assistant. And I, I preached week in and week out. And one Sunday he came up to me. It had been, he had been there for for a year or so, and he said, hey, brother, I just want to encourage you. I think you're a gifted preacher. I think you do really well, but, but if I may, I notice that when you preach about Jesus, you, you preach the cross really, really clearly, but I want you to know that almost every single time, you don't mention the resurrection. I haven't been just like kind of keeping tabs, but I've been just watching to make sure that it wasn't just me, but I've noticed that you often leave Jesus in the grave. How about we not leave Jesus in the grave? <laughs> and it was such a good correction. And I would find myself in the weeks to come preaching, and then all of a sudden I'd be like, and he died for your cross. So let's, or he died on the cross for you, so let's follow him. And like, whoa, whoa. and he rose from the dead. <laughs> like he just, I was like, how did I forget this? But I was so helped. I needed to remember. I needed to remind others that Jesus rose from, from the dead. Another time that actually happened before that, um, I was the evangelism pastor at uh, a church in Texas um, before the church plant, and I did this seminar on how to share the gospel with, with Mormons, with Latter-day Saints. And it was a, I was young, and I was excited. The room was packed. It was going well. Um, and I began to, throughout the time, use the Mormon missionaries as props for jokes, Meaning I'd be like, I would talk about them riding their bikes and showing up in their uniforms and having their name tags. And I would just kind of say, don't serve them coffee. And I would just kind of like, just use them as props for jokes. And everybody was laughing. It was a lot of laughter. Well, after the service, this sweet couple, I don't know if it was Priscilla and Aquila or what, I don't know who it was. <laughs> but, but they came up to me and they said, hey, brother. And I think she, I think she grabbed my hands. One of, those, one of those sweet, she's like, hey, brother, thank you so much. Um... We want to thank you. We learned so much today about God. We learned so much about his word. We learned so much about how to share the gospel with people who are from Mormon background. But could I say something to you? And I was like, sure. We almost brought two of our Mormon friends today. And I just want you to know how thankful I am that they weren't here to hear you. Because I think what they would have heard is that you think that they're a joke to be made fun of rather than that there are people made in God's image who need his grace and who need to be loved and pointed to the true Jesus. I, I still get tears with that one. Like, I could have put people off in my ministry just because I wanted laughs. 
Laughs are fine when it's appropriate, but never at the expense of, of another image bearer. I needed that lesson. I needed a lot. Another time when I was in Texas, um, I, was at Grand, uh, I was still at Grand Bible Church. I was looking to come to Capitol Hill Baptist Church because I knew I'd kind of reached my, my, uh, the end of my abilities in pastoring, and I needed somebody to teach me how to be a pastor. And um, met Mark Dever. He had invited me to come up and to preach kind of in view of a call, which meant, like, if this sermon goes well, then, you know, we'll bring you on staff. You can be an intern, and then we'll look to help plant you somewhere or go to Delray, which we didn't know at that time. But anyway, so I get this email from Mark Dever, um, which he emails me. He goes, may I phone you? I'm like, does that mean you want to talk on the phone? I don't do that. Call me? I guess, yeah. So, so he called me, and he says to me, he goes, Garrett, I want to let you know that last night at our elders meeting, all, of our, all 20 of our elders spent an hour listening to one of your sermons. Now, this is one of those moments where time kind of slowed down for me. And I thought, okay, this is either going to go, and all of our elders fell on their knees. It was the most glorious sermon they'd ever heard. Everybody speaking in tongues. It was amazing. Or, we're not moving to D.C. So I didn't know which way it was going to go. And he said some kind things. He says, it's clear you know the Bible. It's clear that you love God. It's clear that you love your people. Yada, yada, yada. He says, but if I may, I said, you may. (laughs) He says, if you preach like that when you come here, there is no way we will hire you. I said, okay. (laughs) And uh, he said, would you like to know what I mean? I was like, I would like to know what you mean, sir. (laughs) He goes, that is what we would call a synagogue sermon. See, I had preached from 2 Chronicles 24 or 26 uh, about Uzziah. And his pride that led him to run into the temple when he's not supposed to. And I called it the pride that blinds. So this message was on humility, of course. And, um, <laughs> and he, said, he said, you preached a synagogue sermon, meaning it would have been safe to preach that in a synagogue. Because throughout the whole thing, all it was was spirited moralism and you didn't even say Jesus' name. He goes, we think that if you're a Christian and you're a Christian pastor, that you should preach Christian sermons. Which I'm like, me too. I said, I, I, I said, I said I'm actually preaching through Hebrews right now. I, Jesus is all over the place. He's like, if you can't preach Jesus from Hebrews, you should not be in the ministry. I was like, okay. He goes, but we think that every text, including Old Testament texts, should be about the one that they point to. And he said, so, yes. All your exhortations about don't be prideful were good. He says, but then you need to take us to Jesus and say, yet all of us have been prideful. But there was one who was not prideful, who gave up everything. And in humility, he came and he lived a life full of humility in all the ways that we didn't. And then he went to the cross and died for all of our pride. And then he rose from the dead. And now you, by his grace, can be forgiven of your pride and given the spirit of God that you can walk in humility before your God. He said, do you believe that? I said, I totally believe that. He goes, well, you got to preach like that. I said, I will, I promise. (laughs) And that Psalm 50 sermon, I just, like, the whole thing was about Jesus the whole time. So much it was probably not even right because I went too far. but, um, But I needed to hear that. He helped me to begin to see my Bible correctly. I came from a background that was much different in its approach, and it wasn't, it wasn't helpful or healthy I'll give you one more. Uh, this is more, more personal. Not Those aren't personal. Those are very visible. A few internship classes ago during COVID, the COVID class, um, 
we, uh, we were meeting one day, and uh, we were meeting outside, and I, my wife and I, we happily talk about this publicly, my wife and I did not exactly see COVID the same. Um, we approached with, let's just say, different vantage points and different thoughts and approaches to how you should navigate that strange season that we were all in. Um, and I, I, be, I began to become irritated, not, not just with her, but with the, the approach, and I began to just grumble more. Well, during one internship discussion, I was talking about um, the way we're limited and what we're doing right now, and I started to say a couple things about, about my wife, um, which she would say that she didn't feel that from me. We tried to talk it out well, but it was, it was coming out. So after the, after the internship discussion was over, everybody was kind of leaving, and this one brother lingered, and he came up to me and he said, can I share something with you? I said, yes. He said, brother, I know you love your wife. We all know you love your wife. But it's clear that you guys disagree on the way that you approach COVID right now. And I just want you to know, I think you're beginning to border on dishonoring her with the way that you're grumbling, even subtly. And I just think you should, should be aware of the trajectory of that. And it was so helpful for me. I needed to hear that because I love my wife and she's typically right about most things, uh, everything. Uh, but, um, but I was, I could, the spirit, the spirit alerted me to the fact that he was right. I could tell I was, I was grumbling. I could go on and on and I could give you 50 stories about ways I haven't been correctable. The reason I share those though is I want you to know Apart from those stories and many others, I don't think I would see Jesus as clearly as I do today had I not been helped by brothers and sisters who were bold enough to come alongside me and to say, hey, I know you mean well, but this is going on. So I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to many in this room who have helped me in that way and the way that you do that with your elders as well. Again, this is a, the elders, I think, don't, don't feel like we're often attacked here, but thank you. And this not only blessed, well, this, this did bless him, and it blessed the churches. Look at verse 27. And when he, meaning Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to, to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ Apollos here, he wanted to, to go minister in Achaia, which is west across the Aegean Sea, uh, where, where Corinth and Athens and Sparta are. And, and notice here, the brothers encouraged him to go. There's no hesitations about his ministry. He's received this word. He's been correctable. Now they're going to commend him. And they wrote to the disciples to welcome him, which I think is just important to note briefly here. Do you notice here the cooperation between churches? We saw the interaction individually between Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, but now we see it here between the churches, which is a clear pattern in the New Testament. There's, there's an expectation that there's no sinful competition between churches. There's also not some unhealthy disinterest where we don't really care what happens to, to members. This is one of the things I'm regularly encouraged by with the network of churches in this area, is we'll get phone calls or I'll get emails or phone calls and say, hey, just so you know, this member may be coming there, I want you to know that they're a huge blessing. They've been nothing but wonderful here. Or sometimes they'll be like, hey, listen, 
this, this, this couple left, it was really hard for them. You may just want to be aware that maybe, yeah, it might, might use some extra attention. Or, hey, listen, you might want to know there's some, there's some stuff, and if you, want to, if you want to follow up with it, happy to do so. That's not gossip. That's love. Now, it can be gossiping. We want to make sure we don't do it in a gossiping way. But the intent is love, to minister to one another and to help one another because we realize <laughs> that, that the church is God's church, and we want to help one another to, to follow him. Well, it says he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. God used him there to help the church be strengthened, shored up, and saturated in the grace of God. But notice here how much better the ministry of Apollos was because of the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. They had helped him to help others, which is what strengthening in the word is aimed at. 1 Corinthians 3, what then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, so neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, they're co-laborers, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are all God's fellow workers." That is the perspective that this text is intended to help us to have. That we want to be about laboring with God. And that we help one another to see his word and be strengthened in his word. So please, Delray Baptist, may we all walk around here with under construction signs. Aware that we need help from one another. May God give us humble postures toward one another. May we not just be the people who are always out correcting but are also willing to correct when necessary. And may God use that to help each of us in the work of the gospel, that Christ, who died in the place of sinners and rose for sinners and is going to return one day to judge sinners, might be seen as the wonderful, merciful Savior who will forgive any, no matter where they have gone or what they have done, that he's ready to receive and to strengthen them and to build them up and then to use them to make his name known to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to receive it and to believe it. We thank you for this wonderful model of what it means to strengthen one another with your word so that we can follow one another more faithfully. Oh, Lord, would you help that to be what marks this church? Would you produce a teachability among us? Would you guard us from self-righteousness and from pride and any kind of defensiveness and any kind of, yeah, just territorialism or whatever it may be? Oh, Lord, please have your way in us. Make us all the more like Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.